All right, I got 6.30. I got 6.30. Is that what time y'all got? Yeah. And since... Uh, Since Lindsay's making us late, we're just gonna we're just gonna go ahead and start now. So, let me pray for us, and then we are gonna dive into John chapter 14. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to be able to gather um, in a comf- comfortable space, um, to be able to hear your word taught, to be able to read your word freely. And God, I pray that as we look at uh, this critical chapter here in John chapter 14, I pray that. This would be beneficial for us, and I pray that your spirit would give us what we need to understand. And as is my custom, I would just ask for you to pray for me, that I would say only what it is the Lord would have me to say, and that uh, I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel, and uh, it would be beneficial and clear. If you would, take a moment and pray for me. Father, as we come to this text, I pray that even though many of these uh, portions of what we're going to talk about are fairly straightforward, um, God, we still are relying upon your Holy Spirit to provide for us um, what it is that we truly need to understand. And even as we are going to read tonight, that your Holy Spirit is a teacher. And so, God, we just pray that he would be present with us tonight, even as I'm speaking and as we are hearing and uh, ingesting uh, all these things. God, I pray that you would use this as an opportunity to make much of yourself and to conform us into the image of your son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so uh, you should have gotten a handout. If not, I'll catch you at the end uh, because we're not even going to need that little colorful piece of paper that I gave you, little half sheet. We'll hit that at the very end, and we may or may not use the whiteboard at that point. So pay no attention to the whiteboard. It's just over there. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to cover all of John chapter 14. I told y'all that whenever we finished uh, John chapter 11, I was going to do a video that was going to bridge the gap into 12 and 13, and that just didn't happen. Uh, The last two weeks, or excuse me, the last week, got real busy with stuff here at the church, and so I didn't get that. And so instead of shooting that video, I'm going to do my best to give us a bit of a running start to talk about uh, what happens in 12 and 13 and actually forecast the rest of John. So... There you go. That's just my fault right out the gate. All right, so let's talk about last session. And this is really based off of John chapter 11, where we had this encounter with Lazarus, um, the conversation with uh, Mary and Martha, and then Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. Here were some of the final points that we talked about there. Number one, this climactic sign in the book of the signs, right, that John is talking about these uh, signs that point to Jesus' divinity, these miracles that he is performing. This climactic sign is pointing towards a greater resurrection. Lazarus will die again, right? That's just a fact. He is going to physically die one more time. However, the picture of that resurrection is a picture for us to see that there is a greater resurrection for all of us and that we will not die again, right? We have physical death, but then we will have spiritual life. Number two, we talked about that suffering will come to God's people, right? Jesus intentionally hangs around two extra days so that Lazarus is nice and good and dead, right? Mary and Martha are tore up about it. They love Jesus. They are following him, and yet suffering still comes their way. And what we said as a corollary to that is that whenever we have faith in God, that includes a faith in his timing. That means that we trust not only um, what it is that he Uh, promises whenever we are in the good times, but it also means we uh, trust in what he promises in the bad times. Uh, My Old Testament professor, a guy named T.J. Betts, one of the things that he shared with me several times that has really stuck with me, he said, you never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you to be true in the light. You never doubt in the darkness what God has shown to be true in the light. And here, Lazarus is dead, and yet Jesus tells them, this illness doesn't lead to death, but he dies. But then his timing, in his timing, Jesus comes, raises, raises him up to life so that others might believe in him. Yeah. So the last thing, last two things is that one, uh, we see that Jesus directly connects faith and belief in him with being able to see this sign as something that is giving glory to God. And so we are seeing this connection of faith and belief with God's glory. And then lastly, we ended on saying your salvation story, your resurrection story, as it were, that there is a promise of resurrection for you. That is powerful. And what Lazarus, what happens to him is he gets added to the hit list. 
the Pharisees say, well, he's got to die too because there are too many people that know that he was raised from the dead and his story has got to die. So that means he has to die. And the point for us is our story is also powerful. Who are we telling about it? Yeah? Cool? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through um, forecasting the rest of John, which is basically going to be John chapters 12 all the way through really chapter 13 all the way through uh, the end of the book in chapter 21. We'll talk about that in a bit. And I'm going to break down this whole chapter into two major sections. Verses 1 through 14, there are four reasons given for Jesus' departure, and we'll talk about that here in a bit. And then the last half of the chapter is actually one big fifth reason. And I'm going to highlight each one of those. We're going to break each one of them out whenever we go along. And so I just want to throw that up there for you. And then we're just going to have our final thoughts. Yeah? Cool? All right, so let us forecast the rest of John. Whenever we got to John chapter 1 and whenever we were talking about the prologue, the first 18 verses, we said that that's going to map out a bunch of the stuff that we're going to see all the way through the book of John. But then in starting in verse 19, things start to change. We start seeing an introduction into John the Baptist, and we start seeing Jesus' first disciples, right? What happens is in John chapter 1, verses 19, all the way through 1250 is what we call the book of signs. This is basically Jesus' public ministry. So when we ended in John chapter 11 with Lazarus being raised from the dead, that's almost the end of Jesus' public ministry. There's going to be a time or two where we see him talk in chapters 12 and 13, but functionally, the book of signs are now closed. Everything that's going to happen from the rest of the book is going to be in three major sections that is really conversations that are focused on Jesus' disciples, what happens with Jesus' trial and execution, and his resurrection. So you have what we call the farewell discourse, sometimes called the upper room discourse. That's chapters 13, 14, 15, right? It ends with the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And then Jesus is arrested and then eventually executed in 18 and 19. Chapters 20 and 21 are about the resurrection. And in John chapter 21, that's where we have what we call the epilogue, which is like the postscript for the whole book, right? We are going to skip a good chunk of this, which is why I'm trying to forecast it for us now, okay? We are going to move basically from um, our content in John chapter 14. We're going to cover a little bit of 15, and then we're going straight to Jesus' execution, okay? So we're going to cover a lot of ground. You just got to know this is where everything is hanging out. But I want to recap what happens in John chapter 13 because there is some big stuff that happens because Jesus actually drops three big bombs in John chapter 13. If you need these notes, I've got them online afterwards. Get them all taken care of right there. All right, so let's turn to John chapter 13, verse 21. This is in that farewell discourse. Jesus says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say, one of you are going to betray me. So at this climax of Jesus' public ministry, he just raised a dude from the dead. Jesus says, hey, one of y'all are going to betray me. Right? That happens in verse 21. Skip down to verse 33, and you'll see Jesus say, Little children, yet in a little while that I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about his death. So he drops the first bomb of someone's going to betray me, the second bomb of I am going to be executed, and then the third bomb is in verse 39. Peter is saying, Lord, where are you going? You just told us that you're going somewhere that we can't follow. Where are you going? And Jesus is like, well, you can't go. Like, I'm going to my death. And then Peter rattles off there in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay my life down for you. 38, Jesus answers, you're going to lay your life down for me? Is that how it's going to go? No, man. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. At the height of Jesus' public ministry, Lazarus is raised from the dead. They're about to walk into Jerusalem, right? That's all kind of happening um, in chapters 12, 13 range, this triumphal entry. Things are going down. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be executed, and you're going to deny me. And that sets up chapter 14 because all of John 14 is actually answering one question. Every bit of it is answering one question. And this is where those five answers are going to come out in this chapter, right? And I'll do my best to highlight those. But here's the one question. You look back there in verse 37, Peter said, why can I not follow you? 
I'll lay my life down. This is the answers that are given to this question. Why is it better for Jesus to depart than to remain with the disciples? That's the one question all of chapter 14 is answering. Why is it better that Jesus is going to leave than it would be for him to stick around? Yeah? Make sense? All right, here we go. Let's talk about verses 1 through 4. The first answer to why it is better is because Jesus is going to make preparations for us, for the disciples. This is what we read in 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you that I go to, uh, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself and that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. All right. So the first answer to why is it better for Jesus to leave is because he's going to prepare a place for us. And here's the first thing that I would have us note. In verse 1, Jesus actually starts this entire conversation off after dropping these three big bombs. Hey, guys, calm down, calm down. Peace. Pursue peace. I'm giving you peace. Look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Guys, quit, quit stressing. It's going to be okay. Yeah, but what about the betrayal, the execution, and the denial? Hey, 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 hey. It's okay. Right? And just to steal my own thunder, look at verse 27 of this chapter. When you look in verse 27, this is basically whenever Jesus starts to summarize everything he said in chapter 14. This is what he says in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, but I give it to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Right? So he's going to bracket this entire answer to why it is better for him to leave by saying, first off, you can have peace right now. I'm going to give it to you. Even in the middle of the suffering, even in the middle of this horrible news with Jesus dropping the bomb three times, he still says, I can give you peace. Yeah? Y'all tracking with that? So he says, I'm going to give you peace. But then he lays out that there is this monumental importance on belief. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. And your translations may say something like, you believe. There's a couple different ways that could be translated. It could be... Brad, I am telling you, I am commanding you, the same way you believe in God, believe in me. It could be a command. It could be that he's just saying, hey, the same way that you do believe in God, believe in me. I'm going to show you why. Right? Go read the previous 13 chapters. There's all sorts of reasons. Right? But the point is, faith in Christ is, gonna, is going to skew whether you have that peace or not. Yep. Because we just dropped those big bombs in chapter 13, and now I'm saying you can have peace it's only going to come through belief in Christ. Yeah? So we go on to read there in verse 3. Let's pick it up one more time. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And there where I am, you may be also. And here's the point. Jesus is returning to the Father to make preparations for us. And if he's going to leave, he's going to come back. That's the promise. Right? I am going to do something that you cannot do for yourself. I am going to make a way that you can't do on your own. And if I go to do that, I promise you I am going to come back. Does that make sense? And so this is where it gets a little difficult. Whenever Jesus promises that he's going to return again, that could mean a couple different things. You tell me, what, what could Jesus possibly mean whenever he says, if I leave, I will come again? What are some options as to what... Uh, that coming again actually is. What is he referencing there? Rich, the second coming. Okay. What else? There's other options. Ed? I know you don't believe in the rapture, but I, mm -hmm. I would feel like that fit right now. It could be if you believe in the order of a rapture preceding the, uh, the tribulation and the second coming, then this could be that, right? There's also two really simple ones that are actually within this own chapter. What are some of the other options? I saw Bob back there nodding his head, so I'm going to call him here in a bit. Gary? The Holy Spirit. He could be referencing, hey guys, I'm going to send my promised Holy Spirit, and he is going to be with you. The same way that I and the Father are one, the Holy Spirit's going to be in you, and he's going to make his home, his dwelling in you. Okay? What is a third, or excuse me, a fourth option then, though? 
How else might Jesus come back to them? It could be his resurrection. He's already talked about his resurrection. Go read chapter 13. I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. Yep. Yep. After his resurrection, he does. I mean, when you go look in Luke 22, 24, somewhere around there, the road to Emmaus, he blows these two disciples' minds, telling them all about the Old Testament. And so, like, he appears to them. Yeah. I personally think that what's going on here is that this is a, um, a reference to his second coming, that there's this ultimate fulfillment, because that's whenever we will ultimately have peace. Right, there's no longer going to be any strife. So I ultimately think that's what he's referencing. However, all four of those options that we just laid out are encouraging, are they not? It's either my resurrection is insured, the rapture for y'all is insured, the Holy Spirit is insured, or my second coming ultimately is insured. Which one of those are really bad options for them who just had these three bombs dropped on them? So you see how that belief and trust in him is linked to where we find peace. You see that? Lastly, I think this is where through the Spirit, which we're going to see here in a bit, that's how we ultimately come to know that there is peace that we can have, and that's ultimately how we have this intimacy that is heightened with Jesus. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. Questions? Ed, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many rooms. Mm-mm. I don't know. I do not know the answer to that question. I was hoping somebody wasn't going to ask it so I could just skate right past it. Right? The question is, if Jesus is going to make preparations, what is he going to prepare? I don't ultimately know. Some people take this as a reference to he's making preparations to be able to send the Holy Spirit I don't know if that actually works out exactly. It makes sense, but like, I don't even know what that means because we don't see anywhere else where that kind of language is used about sending the Spirit. I, I don't think this is like the act of recreation is happening now. I don't think this is like him just fast-forwarding all the way to Revelation chapters 19 and 20 with his second coming. Like, I legitimately don't know. But here's the point. No matter what it is he's going to prepare or when he is coming back, he has promised he will. Yeah? Ashley. It will be prepared and ready. Yeah. So the answer there is like, could it just be a cultural thing that <clears throat> when the time is ready, then everything will be consummated and ready to roll. That makes the most sense to me, but I don't actually have evidence to say, well, this is exactly where I would find that. I just don't know. But I think that makes sense. We'll come back around. Rich, do you have a comment that you want to throw up? That was it? Yeah. Yep. 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 And I, and we're going to hit on that here in a little bit whenever Jesus talks about his greater works that we are going to do. So we're going to come back around so I don't mention it. Hit me up. Um, but Ed, to your point, when he says he's going to prepare a house, like... I think he uses that word, monet, is the word that gets used in Greek, because he's going to use it later on when the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home monet with us. And so I think he's making an allusion to that, and I think he's using that language, but I don't think he's actually literally going and swinging hammers to build something. Like, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit. But then again, what is it? <laughs> don't know. And I totally profess mystery and incomprehension there on my end. Which is relevant because we're going to talk about something like that here in a moment. All right? Cool? All right. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. And Jesus is now going to give us the second answer as to why it is better for him to go and depart than it would be for him to stay with the disciples. Yep. Um, so let's pick it up there in verse 5. <clears throat> Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you are going. Jesus just told him, hey, where I'm going, you know the way. You know the way. And Thomas is like, uh, uh, actually, no, we don't. What are you talking about? We don't know the way. You're kind of confusing, and you keep talking about we know it. And are you sure about that? He says, we don't know the way. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, that may sound like it's like a disappointed kind of statement. He's actually assuming that they do know him. If you had known me, and you do, then, the rest of verse 7, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's where I think that he's assuming the positive answer. He is saying, if you had known me, and I do believe you do, because what I'm about to say in the rest of the verse, then you do know the Father and you know the way. Yeah? Make sense? So, number one, Thomas says, I'm not really so certain about that. And then Jesus says, yeah, yeah, you do. You know the way. And what is the way? What does he say there in verse 6? I am. So this is the sixth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is where I want to drill down. All three of those nouns have the definite article, and this is why that's important. It's not that I am the way, truth, and life. No, no, no. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In a pluralistic society, which Jesus would have been in, even though he's surrounded by monotheists who were Jews, who were also over the Jews at this time? Who was the ruling power over Jerusalem? The Romans. And then you got some Persian cats kicking around, right? And Lord knows what else is coming up from Egypt. In chapter 13, we see some Greek cats show up, right? They live in a pluralistic society just like us. And whenever Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is making a very exclusive, I am the only way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life. You can even think of it that way. And that's a very broad statement. There is no way to get to the Father than through me. So Thomas, whenever you ask, we don't know the way, Jesus is like, yeah, you do. It's me. You want to get to the Father, which is where I'm going? Go through me. What does that mean? Believe in me. The same way you believe in God, believe in me. Does that make sense? So it's a broad statement. It's exclusive. And I think for a lot of people, Pastor Anthony actually preached on this last Sunday. The question about are we going to hold to what the Bible says and have it as our authority? The question that he asked at one point is, does Jesus embarrass you? There are plenty of people who live in Hannibal around us that would say that exclusive statement is not only wrong, it is embarrassing to even believe it. Right? We're all on some spiritual path, and all paths lead up the mountain. And Jesus says, no, they don't. Because I am the, 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 no one. That's exclusivity. Yeah? Second answer, why is it better? Because I'm going to show you how you're going to get to the Father. Through my betrayal, through my execution, and even through people denying me, yes. But there's going to be life again. Yeah? Questions about 5 through 7? Ashley. Yes, yeah, so the question would be, is there a connection between John 14, 6 and Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 with the Shema, right? The Shema is, it's named the Shema because the first word is Shema Yisrael. Hear Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, right? So is there a connection between the way, truth, and life with uh, heart, soul, and strength? Maybe. I think the connection to that would hang on what is meant by strength in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word there for strength is ma'od. And what that word literally means is muchness. If you've got a whole pile of stuff and there's a whole bunch of it, you would call that a ma'od of whatever it is. And so when he's talking about your ma'od, your muchness, what is that? That's like everything you got at your disposal. What do you have at your disposal in the corollary here? It would be the life, because Jesus is the one that gives you the life. There might be a connection there. I don't know if I've ever actually considered that, but now that you mention it and I'm thinking out loud, I could be completely wrong to also. Just, just to throw that caveat out there, I might be completely wrong, though. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that I would say that would counter that is that Jesus throws in there the heart, soul, mind, and strength in Matthew. So he kind of riffs off of the Shema 
and he he felt free to play with it there. So maybe he's feeling free to play with it here. I don't know. It's a good question though. I don't know the answer. Bobby. Yeah, so we mentioned uh, back in chapter 11, was it? Um, that that's the last time that we saw Thomas um, as being like, uh, was it chapter 11? I might be lying to us. The last time we saw Thomas, it really wasn't him doubting. And then the last thing that we ever hear about Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe unless he shows me the holes in his hands. Like, and he gets a really bad rap for that. I think, to your point... Is this when Thomas starts to think, oh, this is not just a physical thing. There's more to this. I don't know, not because I think that that's a wrong answer, but because I don't think I have the evidence to support that answer. But what I would say is you see the disciples having various levels of comprehension all along. Because when you go back to chapter 1, when you look at Nathaniel and Philip, these cats are convinced he's the Messiah right out the gate. Like, that's the first thing they say, Right. But yet we also see that they abandon him at his crucifixion. So, I mean, I think there, there is this fluctuation in what they comprehend. I just don't know how to nail down what part is when they believed what. Um, but I think that's a good, interesting question that's worth meditating on, that's for sure. Other questions? Gary. Okay, so the comment is, I don't know if the disciples had the concept that Christ is going to die for their sins. Like, let's, let's modify that statement and say, in the Gospel of John, I'm not aware off the top of my head where Jesus immediately connects the sin and his sacrifice happening at once, except for one place, John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think from there they would connect that he would be the Passover Lamb. That that was the purpose of that thing, was to stand, stand in as a sacrifice. I don't know off the top of my head if there is a clear place in the rest of John, other than when John the Baptist says the Lamb of God twice, um, which is all in chapter 1. I don't know if there's another place where those two ideas of Jesus' death and sin, like his atoning sacrifice, that those two ideas are expressed so clearly. So you might be onto something in that sense, but I do think that it's pretty clear that with the timing of him being in Jerusalem with the uh, triumphal entry that had just happened in the previous chapter and that the Passover is coming, I think John, plus he assumes we know the synoptics, I think they would have gathered it, but it kind of comes back and it turns on this idea that Bobby just asked, how can we know what they understood at that moment? I don't know. I, I think that's, again, worth meditating on what would have been going through their head, right? I think that's a good, interesting idea to, to ponder. I just don't know how I would, I just don't know what evidence I would use to answer it positively or negatively. Yeah? All right, that was really esoteric. Let's talk about verses 8 through 11. This is now the third answer that Jesus gives as to why it's better for him to leave than it is for him to stay, and it's because it guarantees greater intimacy. Let's see how he gets there. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then Jesus replies, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? He calls him by name. That's kind of weird, right? Whenever Casey, my wife, doesn't call me Lee Wood, but she says, Lee. I'm like, uh-oh, what, what's up? What did I miss? I'm like, did I not hear you? Are you angry? Did someone hurt themselves? Like, that's what that normally means. Whenever you got really close friends, you normally don't use each other's names, right? And I think that might be kind of what's going on here. Jesus is like, Philip, you're telling me you've been around this long and, you, and you're not getting what I'm saying, right? Show us the Father. It'll be enough. Have you been with me so long that you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not, and what's the word that you have there in verse 10? Do you not believe? All right, we're going to come right back around to that. Don't believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and his works believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, at least believe in me on account of the works. 
So number one, what Philip is actually wanting here is he's wanting like a theophany, right? Do y'all know what a theophany is? That's like a physical manifestation of God the Father. Think about Moses hiding in the cave with his face covered and God like skirts past him real quick. And then Moses catches a glimpse of him and literally his face starts glowing to the point where he's got to put a sheet over his face so he doesn't freak people out. You think about Joshua when he sees uh, the angel of the Lord who's the commander of the Lord's armies and he flips out. You think about Moses when he's at the bush. Like those are these manifestations of God. It seems as though that's what Philip is saying. Just, just show us physically what God is like. And what Jesus says is, how do you not get it? Because if you've seen me, what have you seen? Or who have you seen? You've seen the Father. You've been having a theophany for the last three years, dog. Are you, are you getting that? Remember, I said, believe in me the same way that you believe in God. Like, they are the same thing. And he kind of pulls it together. And I think there is this frustration or disappointment in Jesus' voice, right? He just dropped this bomb on them. And now he's giving them a reason to have peace. And he's going to tell them why it is better for him to leave. And they still don't get it, right? But belief is the linchpin in all of this. It's got to come down to belief, yes? Are y'all seeing how important that is just in the first... 10, 11 verses, right? I think it's used six times in these first 11 verses. That's a big deal, yeah? So the deal is that the disciples had failed to learn that seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. Why? I and the Father are one. Go back to John chapter 12. That's what got everybody riled up in John chapter 12 is that Jesus saying, hey, you do realize me and the Father were one, right? And so here's the deal. At verse 11, I want to focus on this. Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. John chapters 5 through 11 has this forensic motif. It's like there is an investigation. There's people being called to the witness stand and there's evidence being gathered. And over and over, Jesus says, you've got the word of God, you've got your boy John the Baptist, your boy Johnny B, and you've got the miracles that I'm doing. They all attest that I am divine. Here, Jesus cranks that back out one more time. If you're not going to believe in me just because of your experiences with walking around with me, then go check the record and go talk to that wedding party whenever I turn that water to wine. Or go talk to Lazarus. Believe in me on account of the works, because here's the deal. We trust in Jesus, not his works. He does works. They in many ways like promote faith, but we don't have faith in the miracle. We have faith in the one who works it. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, I've been able to do this all along. How can you say you haven't seen the Father or experienced him? You've been seeing it all along, yeah? That's the third answer. Why is it better? Because whenever you see who I am, that intimacy that you're wanting, show us the Father, you already have it. You see how that promotes greater intimacy? You've been wanting this experience to have a relationship with God. Having a relationship with Jesus is having a relationship with the Father. We're going to come around to the very end here. Jesus is going to say, hey, I and the Father are one. We are ontologically equal, but he's greater than I am, right? We're going to come back around to that here at the very end. But his point is, if you want to have a greater relationship with the Father, have a relationship with me. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one sees whom? The Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yep. All right. 8 through 11. Questions? All right. Let us look at what is now the fourth answer that Jesus gives as to why it is better for him to depart than it is to stick around. It's because he says, hey, y'all are going to do better things and bigger things than me. Let's just stop right there. Right, we're going to read that in a moment. Jesus literally says, you will do greater works. Well, let's just read it, just the way I'm not messing this up. Truly, truly, don't miss what I'm about to say. This is important, right? That's what truly, truly signifies. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Let me just ask a simple question. How many of y'all have done a greater work than Jesus? Okay, maybe that's unfair, right? A bunch of Baptists, we're scared of the Holy Spirit. We don't like 
getting into that super spiritual stuff. Okay, cool. Let's talk about Acts. In the book of Acts, which miracles do any of the apostles do that are greater than Jesus' miracles? Well, there you have it. Jesus is a liar. Yes? That must be the conclusion we draw, right? No. Because at the end of the day, he says our works will be like his, but they're going to be greater. They're going to exceed. In what way can our works exceed Jesus? We just identified nobody here has raised two dudes simultaneously from the dead or healed two blind guys immediately, which beats Jesus. Like, that's a dumb way to even think about it. So in what ways can we exceed or do greater works than Jesus did? Say again. Quantity. What do you mean? Jesus is divine. Are you going to outdo Jesus? Let me reframe the question. It's not, are you going to outdo Jesus? It's, are you going to outdo Jesus? And the answer to that is, yes. Because here's the deal. Jesus was limited to one location when he was here on earth. One dude, physical body, walking around. However, when he sends his spirit, and he is in, in fact, you know, multiplied himself, we're going to go all across the globe simultaneously. This is not Jesus lying, right? He's not a liar. So if he says that you are going to do greater things than he did, believe that. Don't be scared of the Holy Spirit. Ask for his help. Ask for whatever it is that you need in order to actually do those things and trust that he can actually make that come about. Are you tracking with this? Are y'all good back there? Y'all need anything? No. Okay. Okay, all right. All right. My girls are back there at the door and thought somebody had split their wig or something. All right, so let's keep reading. Greater works than this you'll do because I'm going to the Father, right? You notice he says, you will do greater things because I'm leaving. That's the whole question. Why is it better that I leave? Because you're going to do greater things. Keep going. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask a couple things. If you ask the smart, small things, I'll do that. Is that what Jesus says? What does your translation say then? Correct me. If you ask me anything... And yet, we're scared to ask for anything. Anything at all at times. Here's my point. Jesus writes a blank check. However, it is conditional. But don't miss the point. He does, in fact, say, ask anything. Right? Because he's connecting, you are going to do greater things, greater works. You will do that. But what does he then immediately connect how we're going to do it? It's through prayer. It's through asking for God to do it through you, right? So I think there are four major criteria that we need to talk about here. Number one, the goal of whatever it is you're asking for, for God to do, it must result in the glory of God, not your glory. If it's making much of yourself, ain't going to happen, right? Why would God do that? So that you can be a little glory thief from him. He ain't. Right? Number one, it has to be for God's glory. Number two, Christ's person and his work has got to be the basis of it. You have got to rely upon the accomplished work that Jesus has already done, not rely on your ability to make it happen. Why would you need God to do that if you can just go do the thing? I would then say, hey man, go do the thing anyway. Right? If God's already given you the means, just go do the thing. So it has to be based upon God's power and not your own. Number three, it must be from someone who is living in accordance with God's will in obedience. We're going to talk about love and obedience a lot here in just a moment. But here's the deal. If you're not being in conformity to God's word, if you are living in absolute sin, like I don't know why we would expect God to answer some bombastic prayer that we have for his glory when really what he wants is for you to walk in relationship with him because he's all about intimacy with you, which we just talked about. Yes? And then lastly, I think that the request that you're making has to align with the character and the will of Jesus. That's what I think he means by in the name of Jesus in part. Like if Jesus wouldn't have done the thing, right, 
and you're saying, well, actually, Jesus, I, I want to be able to do that, and it's like overtly sinful or incredibly unwise, I don't think that's going to happen, right? So when he says, I'm writing you a blank check, if you do anything, it is conditional, but it is a blank check, is it not? Because if not, whenever Jesus says, you're going to do greater things, I don't know how that can be true, and he'll not then give us the things we need in order for it to be true. Yeah? All right, questions about 12 through 14. All right, so that wraps up the first four reasons why it's better. Here's the fifth one. We're going to talk about 15 all the way through verse 21, and it's because Jesus, if he leaves, he's going to send another helper. Okay, look with me in there in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, go ahead and read verse 21, which is the starting and ending of this section. Verse 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Right? So number one, love and obedience are inseparable. That's why I attach, you must have this conformity into the image of Christ and be pursuing a, a holy lifestyle in your requests of prayer. And if you're not doing that, God has something else he wants to take care of with you, like that sin problem first, right? And he immediately launches into doing the right things out of love with the right heart. But then he says this in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, there might be some other translations. What do y'all have there instead of another helper? What other words do y'all might have there? Comforter. Helper, comforter. Counselor, right? That word there is parakletos, and that just means someone who is called alongside. So like in a very legal sense, some dude is on trial. And that guy, you never want him talking for himself. Like that's typically a bad idea. You want someone else who's objective to speak for him. That's the parakletos, the paraclete, the someone who comes alongside. Sue, do you have another translation? Encourager or advocate. Advocate and counselor kind of carry that same idea. Yeah, the paraclete, the parakletos in Greek, right? The one who is called alongside. But here's what I want to focus on. When he says that I am going to send another helper, what does that then imply? I'm going to send another helper. Say again. You already have help. Who is that help? It implies that Jesus was the first, right? And the good news is, okay, we've got Jesus helping us. Yeah, you do. Like on the cross for your salvation. I'd call that help. But what he says is I'm going to send another helper, even the spirit of truth. And the good news is that helper is specifically identified. In verse 17, he calls him the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, and here, listen to me real good. If I ever hear you say this, I'm going to call you out and I'm going to correct you on this. In love, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It is not it, Holy Ghost, like a thing. He is the encourager. He is your comforter. He is your counselor, your advocate, your helper. He is God. He is a person, right? This is really important because whenever we start talking about who the Holy Spirit is, we can kind of get lost in a lot of this like really ethereal stuff. But what Jesus has said is, I am in the Father. Thomas, I know you want to see the Father, but if you've seen me, you've seen him, guy. Like, it's, that's how this works. And then when I go, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And guess what? There's going to be even more intimacy because you are going to have the Holy Spirit within you, not me, the Son, next to you. Like, so there's, there, there's an increase in intimacy, Right? In fact, if you go, let's just, we're, going to not, we're not going to talk about this, so I'm going to go ahead and show it to you right now. Go ahead and turn to chapter 16, verse 7. And whoever gets there second, I want you to read John 16, verse 7 out loud for everybody. What does it say? All right, so we got some good King James there where it says it is expedient. Somebody translate that for us in another translation. What does it say there in 16.7? John? 
It is best. It is to your advantage. You see how that conversation is playing off of chapter 14? Why is it better for me to leave? Because, dog, if I don't go, I can't send the other, another helper, counselor, comforter, encourager, advocate, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth. I can't do it. Yeah? So he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he also goes on to say, hey, the Holy Spirit is not going to be given just to the world. The world does not have access to the Holy Spirit because they don't believe in me. They don't have this faith that, acquire, uh, that gives them access to the Holy Spirit. So whenever he talks about, hey, the peace I'm giving you, not as the world gives you, it's going to come through the Holy Spirit. Yeah? And then uh, let's look there in verse... 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is not going to abandon us. He will come back to us. And then this is where we have Jesus' resurrection ensures intimacy. If he is put to death after his betrayal, after his execution and the denials, and he raises again from life or to life and he sends the Holy Spirit, he says, it's better for you. There is something that is more expedient for you. And his name is the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Truth. And he is in you. So he is ensuring greater intimacy. That is, in fact, the fifth answer. And he goes on to explain a little bit more about that here in a second. Yeah? Questions about this? All right, let's take a little three-verse section, and let's look at verses 22 through 24. Chapter 14, verse 15, and verse 21 kind of open and close with this connection of love and obedience, guess what? He brings it up again. Look in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, asked him, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Because that's what you just said. You're going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, and the world can't have him, but I'm showing myself to you. Like, how does that work? And Jesus actually, he's, Judas is asking how Jesus is going to show himself. But Jesus actually answers the question indirectly. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to, like, let's not talk about procedure. Let's talk about what happens when you have the Holy Spirit. What happens there in verse 23? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Right? And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our, our monet with him. We are going to indwell. We are going to take up residence, right, with him. But whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. And so the question is, how are you going to reveal yourself? Show me how you're being obedient. What's motivating you to do that? What's empowering you to do that? What's causing that to happen? And then he goes, that's how I'm showing myself to you. Because you have everything you need to be able to do greater works than I ever did. Yeah? And in that, he is connecting love and obedience. We don't obey to earn God's love, do we? We obey because God loved us first, and we believe in him, and it's just the motivation that comes out of us. So true believers are going to uh, experience this intimacy, and then there at the very end of verse 24, uh, whoever does not love me doesn't keep my words, and he says, I was sent by the Father, and he reaffirms his sentness by God, the Father. And in essence, what is Jesus kind of previewing with the disciples here? Just in the same way I was sent, I'm going to send y'all out, and y'all are going to go do greater things than I ever did. Yeah? Questions about 22 through 24? All right, we're going to blaze through it. We're going to have time. Verses 25 through 31, we now get a little bit more information about what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our lives. How does Jesus describe him? And he describes him as a teacher, right? Let's look there in verse uh, 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. I think this is like that discourse about his farewell. He's about to leave, but right now I just told you. These things I've told you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is a teacher. How many times did John say in his gospel, like a little editorial note, hey, uh, Nicodemus didn't understand this because he didn't understand that this is like a spiritual thing. You got it? Cool. And then he backs off for the narrative. And then a little bit later, we see with uh, Caiaphas, 
whenever he is making this pronouncement in John chapter 11, he's saying, hey, by the way, you do realize that like Caiaphas as a high priest, he was prophesying there? Like, he didn't know it, but we know it. He got that cool, and he backs up. Where do you think that comes from? That's John, the writer, our author, in his old age, reflecting, and the Holy Spirit is calling these events to his mind and saying, hey, this is what was going on there. Write that down. That's partly what's going on here, right? And the reason this is really important that the Holy Spirit is a teacher is because the disciples don't have perfect recall, right? There are numerous times in the Gospels where the author will say, yeah, and it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection, when they have the Holy Spirit, that they then remember, oh, Jesus said this to fulfill fill in the blank, right? They don't have perfect recall. They are human. And guess what? Neither do you. You don't have perfect recall either. Thank God that he gives us a helper along the way. Yes? So, Jesus then closes with this appeal for peace. The world can't give it to you. They can promise it, but they ain't never coming. But it only comes through my Holy Spirit. And then what happens basically for the rest of the chapter, he's going to summarize this conversation in, in how he is saying it's better for me to leave, that you must have this love and obedience married together. But then at the very end, let's read verse, what were, what verse am I on? Let's look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I'm in the wrong chapter, am I? No, 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 that's it. That's it. I'm just reading the wrong part. Part. My bad. Uh, Look at verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And this is where I'm talking about. There is this ontological equality. The essence, the very being of who Jesus is, is equal with God the Father. He is saying, me and the Father, we are one. And the Holy Spirit is going to be sent in my name, under the authority of the, Holy, or me, of the Father. We are dispatching the Holy Spirit. I have that authority. However, he says, but the Father's greater. I do these works for the glory of God so that you might believe in me. Right? So he has a grand glory all of his own, but he's saying, I and the Father are, in essence, in equal uh, in every way. But he is more important than I in one very specific way we'll talk about in a moment. Questions about this? Jesus is saying that he and the Father are equal in every way, but there is one clear distinction that where Jesus is functionally subordinate, he is going to do the Father's will, right? Jesus, as the Son, doesn't will the Father to do something. In fact, you see him express that exact prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he actually says, actually, it's not my will but yours. So he willingly puts himself under the Father. We'll see why here in just a moment. Yeah? All right, final thoughts. Then we'll have some questions. One, the preparation that Jesus is giving to the disciples is the same preparation we need today, right? The Holy Spirit's coming. You can trust in him. You're going to do greater works. You need to rely on him. You need this intimacy. I'm going to prepare a way, and I'm coming back, and you'll have everything you need. Is that not functionally the exact same thing we need today? Hmm, weird how that works out, yeah? Nothing's changed. We are still dependent on God. We are still dependent on the Son for his work, and we are still dependent on the Holy Spirit to this day for us being able to do anything. Number two, Jesus' exclusivity still remains intact to this day as well, right? Does Jesus embarrass you? If he does, you're going to have a hard time with that statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then, thirdly, God isn't stingy, so how about we start praying some big prayers? What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 is he says, I pray that you would ask so much, more than you can even fathom, because God is able to do far more than you can ask or even dream of. And then we say, you know, God, I just really hope I pass this test. Okay. (laughs) Right? He gave you a blank check, and you put 20 bucks on that thing. That's all you wanted. Here's the last thing. Jesus has been connecting love and obedience all through this chapter, and the reason for it is he is demonstrating his obedience and love to the Father so that we know what real love and obedience looks like. 
what Paul says in Philippians. He says that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even the worst, most excruciating kind of death you can imagine, so that you know that he is more than capable of giving you life now. So Jesus does all these things, and so he subordinates himself all the way to the point of death on the cross so that we might know, oh, he was for real about this love and obedience. And if I'm going to obey going and doing grander works, I've got to rely on him and not my own ability. Yeah? Big stuff. A lot to chew on. Questions, comments, concerns, gripes, complaints. You see how chapter 14 works now? After Jesus drops these three big bombs about his denial, his execution, and, uh, or betrayal, execution and Peter's denial, he says, but it's okay, because there's so much more in store for you. That's what chapter 14 is about. Questions? Ed, yes, sir. Yes. Yep. And uh, that kind of flies in the face of the prosperity principle. Yep. 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 I would be really, yeah. Go ahead. Finish that thought, Ed. Yes. And I think that whenever we look at that, um, we could easily twist it into being. Oh, well, Jesus just wants nothing but good things for you. And I would say, yeah, he does. But that's going to come with the four caveats of praying in, praying in his name in conformity to his character for the glory of God, not for you, right? You don't need a private helicopter, Ed. I'm sorry. You just don't, right? Like, just because you can think it up and it terminates on yourself, like, why would you think that that's the thing that God wants for his kingdom, Right? Yeah, so it, it, it is within limits about how we talk about that God is absolutely generous, but it flies in the faith of this name it and claim it kind of uh, prosperity gospel. I was looking for a specific quote. I can't find it right now. Speaks to that. Other questions or comments? All right, Brad, I need your help. If you didn't get one of these guys, raise your hand, and Brad's going to hand them out to you. Let me steal one. If you didn't get one of those, hold your hand up. So I want to show you this. This is where we started at the very beginning of last semester. I laid out basically a four-year plan, which you'll see there at the top, of topics that we wanted to cover in Equipping Institute, either up here in this room or downstairs with whoever was going to teach it. We are at that point where I've already laid out, um, pre presented to the staff, and we're going to talk about this in the next business meeting of what the plan is for the summer of what we're going to cover. But I'm looking forward to the fall as to what we want to cover. Right now, you can see on that sheet, excellent. You can see on that sheet, we have a tentative plan to cover basically the storyline of the Old Testament. I'm not going to teach everything in Jeremiah. I'm, not, I'm barely going to talk about Jeremiah. But what I'm going to talk about is how Jeremiah fits into the history of Israel and how we got from basically how the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but when John the Baptist shows up, everyone's speaking Greek and the Romans are in charge. What happened, right? So we're going to cover the storyline of the Old Testament, unless in this room, this is just a tentative plan and I will throw it in the trash right now, do not care. If we in this room, because you are the ones who are here, if you think that there is a more pressing thing that would be beneficial for us to teach on, then I would be foolish to not address that thing, right? Are you tracking with me on that? So you look down there on that list where all these colored things are, the red was hermeneutics, that kind of fits in its own category, that kind of tan over on the left, that's all biblical content. So the prophets, we would talk about one of the minor prophets, major prophets, teach through a whole book. Same thing with the, um, any of the other New Testament stuff. Those are all kind of categories. We have covered hermeneutics. In here, we've done the Gospel of John, and Joe downstairs is doing spiritual disciplines. So from what's left on the board in this room, is there anybody who says, actually, I think it would be really good for us to walk through, give me a topic, and we'll talk about it. What you think? You can see that plan all the way through the spring of 2026. We're not even going to cover every single topic that's on that board, and that's the point. 
I'm more than willing to be flexible here, but does anybody say, hey, I like the idea of covering the Old Testament storyline, but I think there is something that might be more pressing? Then let's talk about that. Your thoughts. I literally need you to talk here because I don't want to be teaching something you don't want to hear and you just don't show up. That would be dumb. Kelly, raise your hand. What's your thoughts? You raised your hand. Too bad. Old Testament survey, you said? Yeah, so I would be doing like the law and the history of the Old Testament is really what that is. Yep. Yeah, and that's, and to be clear, whenever it has LGBTQ responses, that's not just we're going to talk about homosexuality and that's it. We're going to talk about all sorts of things that are like the hot button issues related to sexuality, those types of things. That's, that's what's imagined there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Got a story you want to share later on? <laughs> okay. Somebody else? Lindsay's already made us late, so I'm fine with sitting up here and getting more answers, so... Mm -hmm. I taught something very similar to it over 10 hours um, at my BCM, um, where basically we covered 49 topics from prehistory all the way till John the Baptist. Um, and I think it was pretty eye-opening for a lot of folks. I did that in 10 hours. Here we would be doing it in 15, so I could cover more in-depth with more topics too, so that's beneficial. All right, so the plan is whenever we get to the next business meeting, May 21st, um, this basically we're going to bring it up again. So if you are someone who wants to digest this, like Joella, and you want to think about it and pray about it, I give you that sheet. Hold on to it. Whenever we get to that business meeting, I'm going to have something in there, and we're going to talk about it a little bit there, um, because this is the time that I'm preparing for the fall. Like, literally, I try to write out every single week's content, right? I try to have that done before we even do the very first week. Um, so I want to start preparing well and using my summer well to prepare for that. Yeah? Final shots across the bow that you want to give about stuff we might talk about. Let me ask you this. Maybe I should have started here. Do you all know what those words are in the blue, like what those things are? So systematic theology is we can take a idea about basically doctrine, what Christians believe about, laid out, and then we would dissect that idea in all sorts of ways, right? Give you all the evidence, why we believe what we believe. Here are other views that approach that topic. That can be really expansive, and it's not like we would take one idea. We could take several. Um, theology proper is study of God the Father, so like the attributes of God, um, what are his characteristics? What does it mean that he's omniscient? What does it mean that he um, is gracious? Christology is the study of Christ, so the person and work of who Christ is. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the, the three persons of the Godhead right there, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then ecclesiology is the study of the church. Like, how is the church ordered? Where does the church have its, has its origins? What does it mean? How should a church organize itself? That kind of stuff. Yeah? Greg Allison says about the church that it is pneumodynamic and spatio-temporally located somewhere. You can get some good $5 words that literally no one else uses because they're kind of dumb except for that one time you need it. Um, that's, that's what those blue topics are about. Yeah? So chew on those things. We'll talk about it some more. Like I said, I just wanted to give this to you as a way to prepare because we want to be addressing actual needs. We are going to cover these topics. And by the way, whenever we knock all these topics off the list, you know what we're going to do? We're going to wipe the slate clean and we're going to start over. Instead of teaching Malachi in the prophets, we're going to start with Zechariah, right? We're going to hit the exact same topics, but teach different elements. When it comes to the epistles, maybe we talk through Romans, and then next time we're going to hit Ephesians and Colossians. You see what I'm saying? These are just categories, and then we can variate from within there. Yeah? 
this is a this is a decade plus long endeavor just so you know like that's our commitment we as pastors are are charged with uh presenting the whole counsel of god here's our first best stab at that right now yeah and this is how long it's going to take cool all right let me pray for us and we'll be done Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus promises that if he goes away, it is better for us because he is going to return and we have this intimacy. The Holy Spirit will indwell us as believers. We have so many reasons to look forward to your coming. And we just say along with our brother John at the end of Revelation, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We thank you for tonight and we pray that you'll do much in our lives with what we've heard tonight. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you got questions or you didn't get some notes, come talk with me and I'll get you taken care of.